If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a black Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans chapter 12 on page 891. February 24th, 2002 was in the annals of the world a fairly boring day. There's not really much to report of it. The BAFTA Awards were held that day, which is sort of the British wing of the Academy Awards, and the Lord of the Rings took home Best Picture and Best Director from that. The Winter Olympics were wrapping up in Salt Lake City on that particular day, crowned by uh, the Canadians once again beating the Americans in hockey to bring a gold medal to them. If you were into music, the late composer Leo Orstein died that day. Um, he was a Russian-American, and he was about 110 years old, so that's worth noting in and of itself, but that's really it. There wasn't much to the history of February 4th, 2002. It's an important day for me, though. Just over 20 years ago, that was the day I preached my first sermon, and it happened to be the very passage that we have today. So had I known this, I probably should have scheduled it all better, and I would have been preaching this passage close to the 20-year anniversary when I preached the first one. Uh, hopefully it turns out better than the first one did. The sermon certainly preached the gospel of God, and we can be thankful for that, but let's hope that God has seen fruit in my life over that point. I don't remember almost anything about it. I remember at one point I used an illustration of a jello mold being taken to a family reunion, but unfortunately that illustration did not make the cut this time, so you can just kind of take that knowledge and try to place it somewhere into this passage and see where it might fit. I don't know where it actually went, but uh, I do remember making that analogy for some reason. I don't have any notes from that sermon. I don't really remember anything other than jello from that sermon, so you don't get a repeat sermon, but it is a passage that bears repeating. If we look back at chapter 11 and we think through verses you know, 33 through 36, we talked about how that passage is a, a very condensed summary and epilogue and afterword to the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Romans 12, 1 through 2, sort of function like that as a prologue, as a, a foreword to the very chapters that will be coming. It's sort of a condensed summary of what Paul desires to talk about, and as such, it stands as greatly important. So let's hear what Paul will be summarizing the end of his book this morning through the reading of Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. If you would read with me. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of our God. As we look at these two verses, I think that we have a very clear distinction between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1, the question that we might put forward to Paul is, what are we to do? What are we to do? We've, we've gone over the salvation that has been given to us. We've talked much about what that salvation is. What are we to do now? How, what, how are we supposed to live? We, we know that that's kind of been answered from Romans 6. We're supposed to live holy lives before God. But what does that really truly mean? I think that he answers that question in 12.1. As we are going to go through this, I want to kind of 
mark out as this is a really condensed passage of Scripture summarizing several chapters sort of into one location. I want to just kind of go through and hit points of importance, words that appear here to kind of work our way through this verse before we kind of extend it and see how it might apply to our lives. So I would start with one of the first words, which is I appeal. As we go through this, you're going to find that I am going to disagree with the ESV on a number of different points to this passage. I I want you to know that that's simply because the ESV chose words that I don't think are the best. I'm not doing that lightly. I I do that with some trepidation because we read the ESV. I think that it is a, a rich and wonderful translation. But several times through here, I think it misses the mark. This is one of the reasons why you should always read from several versions of Scripture. Nothing that I'm going to propose isn't found in one of those other versions of Scripture, whether it's, it's the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV or the King James Version, as we will see. So I think that appeal is too light. I don't think that Paul is appealing to them. I think that there's a gravity to what Paul is about to say, an urgency to what Paul is about to say. Maybe the word urge would be better. I urge you, therefore, in light of what we've talked about, This must be the case. You you have to do these things. He then reminds them that it's through the mercies of God or by the mercies of God. You're not to think that the gospel is this one-time event. Yes, it's true. Jesus Christ has died, was buried, and resurrected for you. That was a one-time event. But for you in your life, the gospel is not something that has happened to you. The gospel, the good news, is something that is always present for you. It is always there for you. You don't just have the mercies of God in giving you salvation. You live by the very mercies of God. You don't now work for your sanctification on your own outside of the mercies of God, but through the mercies of God. The very same mercies that God has used to save us are the mercies that ought to move us forward. We do all that we do through the mercy of God. Paul then says that we are to present our bodies. We present our bodies, which is slightly weird. Why would we present our bodies? After all, we are called to somewhat spiritual worship. We we hear in the book of John that you are to worship in spirit and in truth, and Paul seems to be saying, no, but you, you actually do need to use your body. And I think the whole reason why he picks out the body is not because you're only to worship in body and offer your body up and not your spirit or your soul, but because if anyone is to make an error in one way, it is to think that we are only to have this sort of like spiritual worship where we just give of our spirits over to God because our souls, after all, are what really matters. Paul will have none of it. There's clearly a line of thinking in early Christianity by certain cults and certain people who don't understand what Jesus has come to do that for various and sundry reasons think the body just doesn't matter. And whether that leads them to asceticism and a complete denial of the needs of their body or it leads them to licentiousness, thinking that, well, I'm really my soul so I can use my body in any way that I want. Paul says he'll have none of it. You are to give of your whole being to God, not just of your spirit and your soul. But Paul specifically points out bodies because that as well is to be given over to God. You are to give all of yourself as a living offering. Again, English Standard Version here uses the word sacrifice. It's a perfectly fine word. I think that it's, it's right in the gist of what it's getting at, but I think that it leads to wrong connotations. It just leads to wrong emphases. When we think of a sacrifice, we think of death. 
we think of something that, that hurts or is, is harmful, is difficult and, and just filled with work and maybe anxiety and just not wanting to do it, we have to sacrifice something, right? It speaks of pain and loss. That's not exactly what Paul is getting at here, though. It's clear that there might be sacrifice and loss. There's clearly work that's happening. There's transforming. But the whole point is what he is going to talk about at the end of verse 2, that God's will is good and filled with pleasure, and it is perfect for you. That, that it's something that is good for you. The, the idea is not a sacrifice that you lay down on the altar and kill, but it is a sacrifice, it's an offering that you present out of your own free will, out of the goodness and the abundance that you have before God. Offering gets at the idea that it is, well, it's a good thing that you are doing this. Certainly, sacrifice can do that, but sacrifice seems to imply these other negative things that I don't think Paul means at all. What Paul says here then is that that sacrifice has three characteristics. It's living, it's holy, and it's pleasing. The idea of it being living is not simply the fact that you are living, and so it must be living, but it is the idea that if we are to give our bodies over for this offering, it is all of who we are, the idea of living is that it is as long as we are. It is all the time, everywhere. So long as you live, it is an offering that is presented before God. A living offering is not a dead offering. The animals are alive, but then you kill them, and they can only be offered once because they only die once. A living offering never ceases to be offered because it is ever living before God to be offered. The idea that it is living means that it is all of who we are all of the time, and it's holy. It's not just moral purity, although certainly there is that sense of moral purity built into it, but it means sincerely that you have been given over to the things of God. So if you, you think about the temple of the Lord, there were just candle holders in there. There were instruments that, that went along with the temple that were set aside for God. They were holy because they were only to be used for the purposes of God. When Paul says that you are to make yourself an offering as a living sacrifice, holy before God, certainly it has moral input, but it also means that you just realize that now your whole life, all of your being has been set aside for the use of God. You are not yours anymore. You belong to another. Christ has redeemed you. He has purchased you by his blood, and therefore you are his to use, and so you are set aside wholly, completely for him to use. The third idea here is, I think, pleasing. He says it's holy and acceptable. Again, I don't like the word acceptable. It, what it reminds me of is when I sometimes, not always, but sometimes make dinner for my family. And I get it all ready, take it out to the table. We say, say our prayers. Watch the kids start to eat it. And I ask them how it is. Not one of them's making eye contact with me. And I get the, mm, it's all right, it's all right. Which really doesn't mean it's all right. It means we're... We're waiting to see if this is actually edible and we'll get back to you is what it really means. And so the idea is, is it acceptable? Is it, it makes it sound like God is sort of like, meh, it's not A work, it's kind of C minus work. We'll, we'll let it ride for the time being. It's not acceptable. This is pleasing to God. The same word is used repeatedly in the sacrifices in the Old Testament to talk about the fat 
of the animals that's burned on the altar. That fat rises as smoke, and metaphorically they say that smoke comes up into God's nostrils. He smells it, and it is a pleasing aroma. The idea that it's pleasing to him. This is the scent that you're going to have in just a few weeks when you walk outside and you're going to realize that your neighbor is grilling. And they're, they're grilling hamburgers and hot dogs and steaks and brats. And you're going to say, that is good. That smells right. Now, in the middle of the summer, it's not going to impact you that much because it's going to be ubiquitous. You're going to be able to do it on your own. It's whatever. But in the springtime, nothing smells quite like a grill, especially here in Michigan. That is the smell that comes up before God. It's pleasing to him. It is wondrous and good. God is not difficult to please. He's not hard to make happy. God is pleased with the offering of your body before him. And the last thing, it's reasonable. Not spiritual so much as reasonable. Spiritual, sure, it is spiritual, which makes kind of an odd juxtaposition with present your body as a form of spiritual worship. So I, I, again, just question what the ESV is doing here, but it it means reasonable. It means that it's it's sort of a logical way in which we would follow our lives now. All that we're talking about makes sense in light of what Jesus Christ has done. That's what Paul is getting at here. It just seems to work. Think back to Romans chapter 1 and the very kind of downfall of mankind that we find there where God is God, and we should know him, but we don't. We don't give him thanks. Instead, we we start to worship the creature rather than the creator, and thinking we are wise, we become fools, and eventually we are led into all kinds of debauchery. And now he's saying, Jesus Christ, having died for your sins, being raised for your justification, And you are trusting in that, having the Holy Spirit work in you to move in that, has reversed that entire process. So that you know of your foolishness now. You know that it's foolish to worship the creature rather than the creator. You know that you have been foolish in the way you've handled your life and sinful. And so you become wise. And you reject the sinfulness and you begin to walk in holiness before God. Worshiping God and giving him thanks knowing who he truly is because he has revealed himself to you. Paul says, this is the reasonable thing to do. Now that Jesus Christ has come, now that he has removed your sin, it is reasonable that you would offer yourself holy, living, and acceptable for God's use for all time. That is what verse 1 means. The question then is, how are we supposed to work this out? What does that look like? Now certainly Paul's going to spend the better part of the next four chapters working that out. We could say a couple of things just briefly about it, though. Let's take something pretty normal and everyday and experience, and that is work. How are you supposed to take what probably for most of you is a menial task? You might look at me and say, well, like, that's pretty easy. Your job, if you want to call it that, what you are paid to do is to think about these things. It's, it's to write sermons and to write study notes and to, to talk to people. And, and all that I do is sort of wrapped up in the church and the working of the church. It's all these spiritual things. So it's pretty easy for me to think that my work is really kingdom-focused. But the vast majority of you do not live in that. You don't live in that sort of circle. You do normal, everyday things that are good and helpful and 
nice and kind as if you're in service or they're good for society because you fabricate stuff or whatever the case might be. Now, how, how are you supposed to do that as an offering to God? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, talking about those who serve, that those who serve under other people should serve under those people with hearts sincere to God and with fear and trembling. But he says that you are to serve them like you're serving Christ. So you're not just doing this thing for your boss. You're not just serving someone because they're a customer who has come in, but you are serving them as though you were serving Christ himself. And the interesting part is Paul goes on to say, you're not doing this to please people. So your primary objective in serving people, whether it is serving your boss who has given you a task or serving a customer who has come in before you, is not to make them happy. Although, no doubt, the good work that you do is a really good potential side effect of, but you are doing it to make the Lord happy. You're doing it for Him. And in such, you are doing precisely what Paul says here. You are presenting yourself as an offering to God. So, in, in my life, whether it's unpacking boxes from UPS trucks or, or managing a pizza place or delivering pizzas or tutoring kids or working as an engineer way, way, way back in the day when I wrote sermons from Romans 12, 1 and 2 that were horrible, probably worse than this one, those were the things that I should have been doing. And it's the things that you should do as well, that you work hard to please the Lord because you're working as unto him and not as unto your boss. We can take a second thing and think about food. We as Americans have a difficult time with food. It's ubiquitous for most of us, and that means that we're going to struggle with it. But if you partake in food, if, if you decide that that donut looks wonderful and I'm going to partake of it, how can you do that in such a way that even that is an offering to God? Well, take some time to think about what has happened to bring that donut to you. Not only has mankind had to learn how to take wheat and to process it into not just whole wheat flour, which you can make donuts out of, but let's be real, into white flour, right? You also have to take sugar beets or sugar cane and process it into sugar and then take milk and process it into butter. And then at some point in time, there had to have been a brilliant man or woman who knew the glory of God and said, let's mix these three things together and dump it into a big vat of oil. And then they pulled it out. And then they put chocolate on it. Do you know how hard chocolate is to make? The little cocoa bean is super bitter. It's unedible. And yet, through the process of fermentation, they make this beautiful thing called chocolate. And when you take a bite of it, you realize that all of that history has led to the moment and God's providential hand has been over all of that to lead you to the moment where you take and eat. That's worthy of praise. That's worthy of giving him thanks for. Because God didn't have to do a lick of that. God didn't have to make anything delicious for you. He didn't have to not just make anything delicious for you. He didn't have to give you the ingenuity, the time, or the means by which to combine these things together to make them wonderful. And yet God has done all of that. Donuts are worthy of praising God for. Benjamin Franklin once said, it's often attributed to him about beer, but he actually said it about wine as a constant proof 
that God loves us and makes us happy. We're Baptists, so we actually think that that's true about donuts, right? So it's, it's a, the constant proof is always in the cross of Christ, but subsequent to that, donuts aren't bad. And it's proof that God loves us because he has shown us his love even in the food that we eat. So if you are to partake, partake in gladness, partake in joy, partake in thankfulness. But if you abstain, abstain not for your own purposes. Don't abstain to make yourself look better, to make yourself skinnier or more fit for your own good purposes. Don't abstain even for your own health, but do so knowing full well the goodness that you're passing on so that you might realize the goodness that you're passing on and say, my life is better passing on that good so that I might give myself as an offering. Your body is given to you as a tool by God. You should steward that tool the same way you steward money that is given to you. So make the most of it. God has given you your body that it might be a living sacrifice, a living offering present before him always. Use it well. And if you abstain from those kinds of food, do so, not only knowing what you're giving up, but doing it so that you might be of better use to the kingdom of God. So whatever you eat and whatever you drink, whether you consume it or whether you abstain from it, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. So what are we to do? We live our lives in all of its parts as an offering to God. The second question then turns to how are we to do that? How are we to do that? I don't mean like how are we to to do that in work and how are we to do that in food? We kind of laid out that outline, but how am I supposed to get to the point where I actually act like that? Because that's tough. Living is holy, pleasing, and and even a living offering is not, not how we normally live. We're sinful. And we retain that sin. It's just part and parcel of who we are. It's sort of hard-baked into us. Paul gives us two things to do. First, he says, there's something to not do. And second, there's something that you have to do. The first thing you're not to do in verse 2 is do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this age. I talked to you briefly. I mentioned it in passing about tutoring. I loved tutoring students. Loved it. One of the best parts of anyone who has ever tried to educate someone is that moment when like a a realization hits them. And I remember talking to someone about physics and uh, the idea of gauge pressure versus actual pressure. And the student, for whatever reason, because, you know, we're all kind of like fish in water, we don't realize the air around us is always exerting a pressure on us. And when it kind of realizes, the student realized that the whole atmosphere is actually pushing down on him, it was sort of this like, whoa, I I never realized that. And, and it's this beautiful moment where he kind of came to realize that, that there is always pressure pushing down on you from the air. We don't realize it because air is light. We don't realize it because it's always there upon us, but it's there. It's there. Likewise, many Christians are surprised by the fact, I think they must be surprised by the fact, that every single thing around you is trying to put pressure upon you. It is molding you and it is shaping you. Molding you to an image. Making you into a type of person. Everything you consume, everything that you watch, everything that you listen to, everything that you read is working to conform you and to shape you and to move you into being a specific type of person. The apps you use, the TV you watch, the music you listen to, all of it is putting pressure upon you. 
The most dangerous of these are the ones that you don't even know exist. You don't think about. If you read an opinion piece online, or you watch someone giving their opinion on the news, you know it's their opinion. You know that they're trying to persuade you. You watch a TED Talk, you know that's kind of what's going on. They're trying to persuade you. That's not terribly dangerous because you know what's going on. The problem is when we think that things are neutral, they're not neutral. I am sure that many Christians believe that they watch the news and that the news is neutral. But the news is just facts, right? Facts are facts. How can they be, be tinted and swayed in a certain direction? I'm going to tell you, there is no neutral news. There's none of it. The stories that organizations cover, the manner of their covering, the facts that they choose to report and those that they choose to leave out, the manner in which they speak of those facts, none of it is ever without bias. They are always using facts to paint a picture of the world and to change those who listen to them into being a certain kind of person. There is no neutral news company. None. If you are a news junkie, if you find yourself watching cable news and you find yourself reading the news constantly, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's on CNN or whether it's on Fox News, you need to know that they are molding you and attempting to make you into a type of person, and I will guarantee you it isn't Christian. And the thing that they're trying to make you into is not a picture of Christ. Listen, they don't exist to provide you with neutral news. Those companies all exist for one reason— to make money. Now, in China and in Russia, they exist to support the state. In America, they exist to make money. Make no doubt about that. And they will tell you what they need to tell you in order to get you to tune back in so that they can make more money off of you. You are a cog to them. The more people they can manipulate into looking like them, so that they tune in more often, the more money they make. They will make you angry, point out the person who is responsible. They do their best to provoke, to inflame, to speculate. They do everything they can to make you feel like they are on your side. And that person, and that organization, and that thing is not. Christians have to understand this. At least start coming to grips with it. I'm afraid, truly afraid, the many Christians in this world are less formed by Peter and Paul than they are by Tucker Carlson and Anderson Cooper. This is being conformed to the thinking of the world, not to Christ. Facebook, Twitter, they all work on the same principles. People are working to get you to like them so that you might be formed in their image. People want you not on the side of Christ, but generally on their side. Not everybody. I understand that. Not everybody. Technology is just not neutral. It is designed to lead you back to itself. Apps are designed this way. They're designed like lotto tickets and designed like slot machines that make you feel like you're oh so close, but you're always missing out. There's always another jackpot right around the corner. There's always another another way in which this country is letting you down, another way in which people are rotting the core of it to make you angry so that you tune back in. There's always another thing for you to check, another thing for you to do. And all the while, you're being conformed to look just like this world. 
For many of you, that might mean that you have just enough Jesus to get you through. That's great. It's better than not having enough. Perhaps you can dabble in this stuff and be molded and shaped by it and still somehow remain faithful to Christ in some measure. To the measure that these things affect you and to the measure in which I've described, you say, well, that sounds like me. I'll leave between you and the Spirit. But I will say this. Floundering in the world should be steadfastly compared to the flourishing in Christ that Paul holds out to you here. If Christ has delivered us from this present evil age, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, if we understand this world to be fallen, if it's not our true home, if it's set against us, why allow people who do not wish us to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, why give them the allowance to form us and to mold us in whatever way they seek? Why would we give ourselves over to that? This is a rotten fruit. It's soft it's wicked. It's got mold all over it. Paul says you are not to be conformed to this world, but you are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says transformed by the renewal of your mind. He doesn't say transformed into what? It's not too hard to figure out what he wants you to be transformed into. He wants you to be transformed into following the will of God, into Christ-likeness. I think that the KJV really does translate this particular passage much better. If you will excuse a couple of anachronisms that I'm going to rephrase in modern English, the ESV says this, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, what the ESV makes it sound like you're doing is, you are, you are being transformed in your mind so that you can better discern what the will of God is in the world. And I don't think that that's what Paul means at all. The point isn't that you can discern what the will of God is. The point's much more fundamental than that. Knowing what the will of God is, that you will start to see that God's will is good, that it's perfect, and it's pleasing. That's the point. That's the point. So how are we to do that? Well, obviously... If the whole point of being transformed in your mind is so that you would see that the will of God is good and perfect and pleasing to you, that by testing it, by doing it and doing it and doing it, you find out that, yeah, this this stuff works. It's crazy. The one who has created us knows what he's doing when he tells us to act this way, to live this way, to walk this way. We ought to know what it is that he has commanded us to do. So we go to the Old Testament. We read his law. We see what he means when he says, you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. We see what he means when he says, you are to be devoted to me above all others. We go to the prophets. We go to the histories. We find the kind of people that God approves of and we model our lives after them. When they fail, we see how they fail and how they repent. We, more than anything else, go to the life of Christ, who is the model and the picture of what we are to be. We ask How does he treat people? What does he say to those who disagree with him? How does he lead them? How does he correct them? How does he he handle people who confront him? How does he handle the applause of men? What does he do when it comes time to have compassion and mercy upon people? How does Jesus live his life? The very one who brings the idea of God before us. 
all of this is the very purpose behind just about everything we do here. Now, obviously, Sunday morning is a bit particular, but whether it comes to community groups or Sunday school, or whether when you get together with a friend over coffee, this is what you get together for. It's to read Scripture together. It's to understand what Scripture is saying together. So we don't just read it in isolation, but we read it with one another. So when we get together for community group, we read books. We're reading the Apostles' Creed right now. I don't care a lick about the Apostles' Creed. Half the time, we don't even talk about what's in that book, which is, yes, in my group, primarily my fault. But the whole point is that those books are simply ways in which we can begin to talk about Scripture and to talk about what God has done. So if you're reading a chapter on the Ascension and you spend the entire time talking about the goodness of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you win. That's what it's there for. So we read Scripture, but we read it in community as well. That helps to see not only what the will of God is, but how good and pleasing it is when you see it work out in other people's lives and you see it work out in your life. You can testify to that. I think Paul wants us to do this in community as well. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2. We mentioned 1 Corinthians 2 last week, talking about how the Spirit searches the depths of God because he is the Spirit of God. He can search the depths of God. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So he says, the spirit has come to us, and he from the depths of God imparts knowledge to us. Why? Paul says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, it's a community thing. We don't gather knowledge for our own good purpose and holiness. We gather it so that we can help one another in it. So that we can help one another see that God's will is truly good and pleasing and perfect. So one, while we read to find out what the will of God is, and second, we might read it in community. Third, I would suggest that we simply read those things that stand the test of time. There are many current authors that write things that are truly good. I would say that it's really hard for us to gauge what is truly timeless when we stand so close to it. I think some of what we find brilliant and powerful and helpful today will in 20 years be seen as provincial and short-sighted and limited. So read works that stand the test of time. And you might want to say, well, I mean, We've got this war in Ukraine. How are we supposed to respond to that? We've got political problems. We've got problems with gender identities and, and sex. And we've got these issues that come up with, with poverty and, and all this. These are all modern problems that we're having. How, how is reading the ancient people supposed to help? Well, I mean, issues of sex and power and politics, of identity and war. How, how we are to live together with, with people who do not believe like us. Guys, none of that's new. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, a number of the reasons why Christians cannot get in, in like mind on some of these things is because we're trying to invent the wheel while we're in a wagon on fire screaming down a hill. The wheel's been made. We don't need to redo it. If we would have read deeply of these things and thought deeply of these things, we wouldn't be nearly as lost as we are on some of them. That includes me. That includes me. In doing these things, reading together, seeking out the will of God together, 
you find that God's will is good, right, and pleasing, and true. What Paul is saying here is that you test it. You live it out. Do the will of God. As the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do God's will. Find out that it's pleasing. Find out that it's good. And you begin to develop a taste for it. You begin to remember and to see that it's good for you. When your flesh screams to do the thing that you've always done, you're reminded, no, God's will is good. It doesn't seem like it's the the perfect thing to do now. It seems like it's going to lead me into harm or it's going to lead me into disaster. It seems like it's going to make this relationship worse. It seems like it's easier to run and hide. It seems like it's easier to not do that thing. Now you, you realize over time, no, God's will is good and pleasing to you. How are we to live our lives as offerings to God? By being transformed through his word and in his people so that we might see his will as good and perfect and pleasing. Over the next few chapters, Paul is going to drive these things home in a variety of different settings and a variety of different situations. He is going to press these things into us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just so that you might think that you are forgiven for your sin and that you might escape from hell. It is at least that as absolutely vital to everything that Christ has done for us. It is the center and the foundation of everything, but the gospel and the good news and what God has called you to is not nearly that small. The calling of the gospel is not simply on our lives. The calling of the gospel is for our lives. Our lives are to be lived while we live them for God. Today is Palm Sunday. We remember that this is the day in which Jesus Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. It is a good time for us to think about the very thing that happened that day and what would happen less than a week later. Matthew chapter 21, we read this. The crowds that had gone before him followed him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I think it's right that scholars warn us that we shouldn't just equate these people with the people in the end who are going to crucify him. Primarily, the people in the end are the leaders who cause all of the disruption and all of the problems. But the same people who are raising up their voices saying, Hosanna in the highest, do not utter a word in the defense of Jesus Christ. They don't say anything about it. They left him. They'd say quite for dead. They didn't sing his praise when he was on the cross. This holiest of weeks, as you consider the death and the resurrection of our Lord, let us also consider our response to him. These people hailed him as the king until it became inconvenient for them to do so until it didn't fit their purpose. The powers that be pressed into them, molded them, told them he is not the one for he is being crucified, showed them that he is not the one because he wouldn't come down off the cross at their beckoning call. They were molded and shaped so that they didn't maintain the transforming power of what Jesus had been doing for them in their lives. They were conformed to the world. Let that not be true of us. Do not be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed by the very word of God for God's glory and our own good. Let's pray. Father, we know that your will for us is certainly for our good. We spend so much time praying to seek it, desiring to know it. But let us not miss the great portion of it that has indeed been revealed to us. May the lives of your people be such that we are devoted to you in all circumstances, with all that we are, for you alone are our good. Give us a clear understanding of this. Certainly give us conviction to see it through. Give us help from our brothers and sisters to carry it out, and zeal from the Spirit to follow. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.